You're listening to The Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name is Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. The Dietitian Cafe is a podcast for healthcare professionals to learn from and expand their horizons within the world of food and nutrition. In today's big dietetic debate, we're looking at Natasha's law and considering how best to protect the public from food allergens. I'm delighted to be joined by a research allergy specialist and freelance dietitian, Lydia Collins-Hussey, and the founder of Tiny Tots Nutrition, Paula Hallam. I'm going to hand over now to Lydia and Paula to tell us a bit more about themselves. Thanks, Harriet. My name's Lydia. I'm a paediatric allergy dietitian. I'm a research dietitian at Glasgow University. Uh, I juggle a few other roles, including a dietetic advisor at Allergy UK, and I'm also um, a freelance dietitian, so uh, mainly working in milk allergy and allergy prevention. Lovely. Thanks, Lydia. And over to Paula. Thanks, Harriet. Hi, I'm Paula. Um, so yes, I uh, also work in, in, in allergy research. I work in allergy research unit um, based at King's College London at St. Thomas's. And I'm also founder of Tiny Tots Nutrition, where I work with um, mainly with families with uh, food allergies and also have a really special interest in plant-based nutrition. Uh, so that's me. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss what I'm sure is going to be a very interesting topic. So um, in this episode, we're going to talk to Lydia and Paula all about what led them to specialise in the interesting topic of food allergies. We're going to talk a bit about what their current roles involve and what they feel needs to be done to further protect the public from food allergens. So it's great to have you both with us. Before we delve into our main topics for discussion, we're going to dive straight into our quickfire questions. So these are a chance for our listeners to get to know you both a bit more personally. So, Lydia, let's start with you first. Can you tell us about your proudest achievement? Sure. Um, I think I've got a couple, actually. Um, So one was completing my master's last year. So I did um, a a standard dietetics uh, BSc and then I did a master's in pediatric dietetics. So um, completing that was uh, alongside working was uh, a big achievement. And my other achievement was um, winning a prestigious Barry Kay Award um, back in 2019 for my work, um, my allergy work in NHS Grampian. So um, basically it was a cow's milk protein allergy um, pilot for better access to care and helping to reduce uh, prescribing spend of, of hypoallergenic formula. Brilliant. Well, congratulations. Those are fantastic achievements. Paula, what's been the proudest achievement for you so far? Um, okay, so I guess... Personally, obviously, my daughters having children, raising them with my husband is, yeah, huge challenge and achievement. So, yeah, personally, that would that would definitely be one for me. Professionally, um, um, I think, yeah, similar to Lydia, Lydia um, getting a PG cert in paediatric dietetics from University of Plymouth was definitely one of my kind of yeah alongside children and working and everything was was one of my proudest moments and then um really recently just a few months ago um I was asked to write a chapter in in a book that's coming out in in August um and it's it's not exactly on food allergies it's more it's on sort of plant-based nutrition um and yeah I'm, I'm really really proud of that as well very exciting we'll have to have you on again once a bit comes out to find out yeah more. <laughs> Um, next question. How do you like to relax in the evenings, Lydia? Not that I imagine you have much time. <laughs> um, so I live in a lovely part of the UK, the Lake District. Um, so I love to be outdoors. Um, like Paula, I absolutely love my dog. So I love walking my dog <laughs> a lot. But I also um, do a lot of fell running. So uh, running the mountains, although I've just gone over my ankle, which isn't helping. So I'm actually out at the moment. But also anything outdoorsy. So I do a bit of wild swimming as well. And then I live quite rural. So um, our little village has a pub and I will go there with my hubby and we will have lots of food and drink. (laughs) That sounds idyllic. Lake District is still on my list to visit. So you've just prompted me to get that one booked in. (laughs) how about you Paula how do you like to relax in the evenings yeah sure I love the outdoors as well so um might not be the evening but kind of any time of day uh 
going for a walk with my dog in Richmond Park or one of the woods around um, where we live. Um, and I do love a glass of red wine. So I might have a glass of red wine with a bit of Netflix and a good book or something like that. So yeah, one of those. Sounds like a perfect plan for relaxing. And final question, if you were relaxing alongside a celebrity dinner party guest, who would it be and why Lydia? I absolutely hate these type of questions, um, but I think I would have the Queen um, at the moment just because it's the Jubilee and I think it'd be very interesting. 70 years is a heck of a long time to uh, be in, in range, so I think it'd be very insightful and just how much has gone on in history in that time is, is crazy. So I'd also like to ask a few questions, but I'm sure she would give um, wouldn't give me all the answers anyway but uh, yeah so I think I'll go with with the Queen. Brilliant a very regal occasion for the Jubilee <laughs> no doubt and how about you Paula who would you be dining with in an ideal yeah. world? Oh I, I love the Queen she's brilliant um, I would think I would choose someone um, Michelle Obama is just one of my absolute favourite um, people out there um, the Obama's both them as a couple actually they just I just think they're so inspirational um and they've got you know had such an interesting life and I yeah I just love to chat to them and ask them loads of questions about all the experiences they've had brilliant well that sounds like a very interesting mix maybe we get the Obamas and the Queen together in one room that <laughs> yes. would be very interesting discussion <laughs> Lovely. So now we've found out a bit more about the two of you, let's delve into our topics for discussion. We're talking all about food allergies and Natasha's law today. So let's begin by, can you perhaps tell us a bit more about your background and what exactly led to you specialising in having this real interest in food allergies? Lydia, I'm going to come to you first on that one. Yeah, sure. Um, so my background, um, I've been a dietitian for, for nine years and I came into dietetics a little later. Um, I mean, done a degree in English literature and drama, which is very different, but I trained at Plymouth Uni and my first role was a classic kind of band five, but I went into peds quite quickly within eight, nine months. And within that role, um, which was in an NHS role in Cumbria, um, the, my caseload was mainly allergy or what 50% of it was multiple allergy or, or, or milk allergy and those um, patients were getting very little support um, there wasn't much access to uh, allergy services um, and I started to to get a little bit more interest I didn't have much food allergy um, knowledge at that point because I think at uni you know you, you the focus is mainly on, on nutrition support, diabetes, obesity, and, and you get very little time on, on paediatrics, so, and especially food allergy, but I'm sure things have probably changed, changed since I, I trained. But I was lucky to um, work with a passionate consultant who I actually still work with today. He doesn't work at that hospital anymore. Um, and he actually inspired me to go on some, some good postgrad training. Um, and that's where it's, it's evolved even more from, from that. And I left my NHS role after kind of four and a half, five years and went to work, um, for Aviva, which is a dietetic tech-based company. Um, and I've worked as part of their cow's milk protein allergy. And it's just evolved from that. I knew I wanted to be an allergy. I knew I wanted to help people. You, you feel like you make a real difference in, in food allergy to people's lives. And I've always just kept that passion um, there. And now um, I've left Aviva um, and I've moved on into, I can say, my research role within Glasgow. And I'm very into kind of more around allergy prevention, how we can obviously pre prevent this allergy getting even even bigger um, and then obviously with my other role as a clinical dietetic um, advisor for allergy uk it's interesting because i get other other areas of allergy um, that come into that as well which is interesting and, and being um, supported by other colleagues within that as well because when you work on your own um, it can be quite uh, isolating at times so it's nice to kind of discuss uh, with with others for that as well and then obviously um, my freelance business I've, I've gone into into specifically milk allergy but also we'll see multiple allergy as well and kept that interest going that's a really interesting overview and, and for our listeners who are interested in perhaps working food allergy in the future is it an area that you just gain experience of in the job do you need to qualify as a pediatric dietitian do you need to go off and do a master's what's the sort of recommended route to get to where you are today do you think 
Yeah, there's a lot around kind of allergy competencies at the moment. So the BDA, the Food Allergy Specialist Group, they've been looking into that. I know certain like food dietitians that within their kind of hospitals or trusts have also been looking. So it's really dependent. But I think as a uh, as a mainstay that then there needs to be some sort of post-grad training, whether that is for a BDA module, for instance, like, I think it's module two has food allergy within that, but I would go more uh, specific. For instance, there's loads like uh, the BSACI, um, the British Society of Allergy Clinical Immunology, they have um, support there, masterclasses through Allergy UK. Um, and, uh, what's the other one? Um, oh, it's gone out of my head that, uh, Paula, if you come in, I can't think of oh. one yeah what, what are you thinking are you thinking the one in London or the oh yeah the there's those as well yeah and the the other allergy academy um oh, they that's they it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um they're really good I did my postgrad training through um through Plymouth University as part of the Beads, but I also did one through Newcastle University, which is similar to Southampton in that um it's all done online it was just a um a module but it just gave you that grounding in immunology because immunology does go over my head somewhat (laughs) Um, yeah it is being online and stuff isn't it it is and what's useful is that you go into other atopic conditions so you learn about the management of eczema and asthma you know I wouldn't give advice around kind of asthma but in terms of kind of eczema we see that a lot within our practice and things so yeah I hope that gives a bit of an overview on, on what's out there yeah, absolutely. Thank you for covering that. And Paula, have you taken a similar journey to Lydia? How have you ended up specialising in seeing families with um, allergies? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a bit older than <laughs> Lydia, so I've been a dietitian for a long time, over 20 years now. So um, I studied in, uh, I grew up in, in Cape Town and I studied at um, University of Cape Town. So that's where I did my undergrad and then I did a postgrad nutrition dietetics out there. Um, and then I always had absolute passion for pediatric dietetics. I knew when I was a student, I knew, right, I just, I want to work with families and children. I, I just knew, I think it's that thing where you, you know, obviously children are growing and you can see the, the really big impact that you can make um, and, and the, the lives that you know how you can change them and stuff like that and it's you can really see that um impact um and then yeah then then moved to the uk and uh, to get some experience here and um worked in various different hospitals always in pediatrics um and yeah my first job was at st george's hospital and did, had a varied sort of caseload of um of different children and like Lydia a lot of that caseload was um in food allergies so that's where I sort of first got a, a kind of taste for it I guess um of of that sort of speciality I also worked for a long time in um inherited metabolic disease um so I worked at Great Ormond Street and UCLH um specializing in 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 IMDs and um it's quite a lot of similarity between metabolic diseases and food allergies because you are sort of um you, you might be limited in terms of what that child can have. And, and so you're looking at what you can include and how you can make the diet nutritionally adequate, despite the, you know, the, the things that they need to avoid or, or the sort of limitations that you have. Um, and then obviously they um, making sure that they're growing appropriately and all those things. So, yeah, so that's um, so I kind of and then was worked in IMDs for a long time, inherited metabolic disease, and then sort of moved back towards general pediatrics and food allergies. Um, after my daughters were born, I worked more sort of locally um, at my local hospital um, and then started working more freelance uh, to to be a bit more um, flexible with my girls as they were growing up um, and had a lot of requests from parents um, of children with food allergies um, uh, that they might have been waiting for long times um, in, in terms of the waiting list for, um, on the NHS for, to get an appointment or, you know, just maybe needed a bit more extra input. Um, and I worked sort of alongside an allergist um, and, you know, he, he sent me lots of food allergy referrals. So, yeah, so that's how I sort of got more and more um, experience in it. And then um, started my, my, my business, Tiny Tots Nutrition, um, about eight years ago or so. And then it's just kind of built from, from there um yeah and then start started a um instagram channel like lydia a few years ago and you know just the questions it's just that you realize how much need there is out there and 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 how much confusion and myths and you know sort of so many questions and, and areas that people um 
parents want to know more about so um yeah so that's how it sort of led up to this point and I'm sorry just to just to add as well I'm also I also work in a food allergy research unit so um so involved in like the continuation of the leap um, study that's still ongoing and um involved in various like immunotherapy um studies and, and and things like that so that's fascinating and it's just so so interesting seeing what's happening in allergy research and it's quite a fast moving area isn't it so yeah it's, it's yeah it's fascinating <laughs> indeed and brilliant to have two such highly qualified individuals with us to discuss this fascinating topic just to put this topic into perspective um you mentioned Paula that you know you get a lot of interest on social media from families and parents about food allergies so just how common are food allergies? Do we have any statistics around this? So generally, the, the first of all, please feel free to chip in, Lydia. The, the, generally, it's about 5 to 8% um, of, sort of, uh, of children that could have um, food allergies. Um, it, it kind of varies a little bit depending what you're reading or what population is, is kind of um, being looked at. I think there's um, probably a lot more out there that that maybe think the child has a food allergy but it's not necessarily a, a kind of pro, proven food allergy um but yeah i think a lot of confusion and things that that go around that and and not necessarily being able to access um the sort of help or guidance that they need and and so sometimes that you know that there can be lots of confusion for parents um but yeah generally five to eight percent and milk egg and peanut allergies are generally the most common in in sort of babies and young children that's very interesting. And is that statistic similar in adults? Do we know, Lydia? Yeah, um, in terms of al- adults, yeah, we do. It's slightly lower. Um, Paula, do you know the actual stat? <laughs> I'm just... Uh, I think it's uh, around 2% or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I was 2%, like, something like that. Yeah, adults. Sorry, I don't work so much in adults. That's why I don't have <laughs> all the statistics on that. But um, we know the thing with allergy is that... Well, the stats from like Allergy UK, for instance, 20 million people in the UK have an allergy. That's that's crazy high. And all I even read another stat today saying 40 million. So it, it does vary. But when we look at allergy, obviously, Paula's come from food allergy angle there. There's obviously yeah. asthma, eczema, allergic rhinitis, hay fever as well. So um it's just bearing in mind kind of that umbrella that that all of these conditions come come under as well. And when we talk about kind of common allergens um, in, in children, as Paula has touched on, within adults, we see a lot more kind of fish or shellfish, but also fruit and vegetables more in relation to kind of pollen food syndrome um, as well. So um, it really does depend um, the prevalence on the type of allergen um, as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I'm wondering if there are particular populations or subgroups of children that are more at risk of developing a food allergy. Does the research show that there are specific risk factors, Paula? And can you talk us through them? Yeah, yeah, sure. We we know um, definitely that children who've got uh, who have uh, who develop early onset eczema, particularly if it's quite severe eczema. So early onset in the first sort of three to six months of life, particularly if it develop if it starts sort of under three months of life of, of age, um, and if it's if it's quite severe. So if they're needing sort of prescription steroid um, creams, uh, really to 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 keep that or to get that. Um, um, eczema the skin uh, under control um, that is uh, a definite risk factor for um, for food allergies I think it's something like 30 percent of children that that have got um, uh, that type of early onset quite severe eczema um, can go on to develop a food allergy so there's there's definitely there's a lot of research going on in, in that area in, in terms of um, eczema and allergy prevention and and that type of thing because we know that it's 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 such a, a high risk factor um, we, we also know that children who already have one food allergy they there's quite a high chance of them going on to develop another food allergy so for example cow's milk allergy really really quite common Common in children is the most common um, food allergy in in babies, um, and many of those children um, can go on to to develop other food allergies. It's it's um, it's almost unusual for a child to have only one allergy, so a food allergy. So um, so so those are the main risk factors: sort of early onset eczema and an existing food allergy. Um, 
some people or, or in the past there has been quite a lot uh, spoken about sort of a family history and that not to say that that isn't important at all there, there is a slightly increased risk of um developing a food allergy if both parents or particularly both um if if one parent or both parents even more if both parents or if both parents and a sibling have a food allergy. Um, but it's it's felt that that it isn't sort of a given um, and it, it isn't the most important factor in terms of developing um, a, a food allergy. It's felt that it's more from the sort of eczema side of things. Do you want to add anything else, Lydia? Yeah, <laughs> there's quite a lot of risk that Paula's touched on, on a lot of those as well. And I think there's still a lot that we don't know as well still, but um in terms, they tend to be based on different hypotheses. So we have like the hygiene hypothesis, the dual allergen um, hypothesis, but a lot of this, um, a lot of the other risk factors we're looking at is kind of antibiotic use early in life, um, C-section babies, for instance, limited food diversity. So Western diet in particular, um, looking at that, um, there's a lot around kind of microbiome. And I was at a conference recently where they were talking about greenness and less exposure to environmental uh, factors as well. So microbes, the diversity and things we know, kind of urbanisation, if we live in a more rural area, um, it has shown kind of less likely to develop allergies as well. So, yeah, there's a lot, lot, a lot of research out there. That's very interesting. And can parents do anything to reduce the risk of their child developing an allergy? I mean, I, I can imagine it's quite a emotive topic to discuss. For example, if you're someone who's got to have a C-section, perhaps not through choice, um, you might understandably be quite worried about that and the implications of food allergy. So are there any kind of practical means that parents can adopt to reduce that risk for their child later on? So there is a lot of kind of guidance around this but there's also a lot we still don't know at the moment so in terms of kind of mum's diet and um in relation to we advise kind of not to take anything out of mum's diet well unless we're suspecting allergy obviously but while she's pregnant and obviously breastfeeding as well um in terms of other advice, it's all around kind of early introduction of solids, of uh, particularly egg and peanuts, um, which I think we can go into a little bit more detail later on. But uh, Paula, have you got anything else to add? I know like the Yaki guideline has a really nice summary of this um, and that only came out. We can link that in um, 2020 or 2021 and it just summarises what we know so far about preventing allergy. And there's so many studies looking at other areas of this at the moment, particularly around kind of vitamin D supplementation or probiotics, prebiotics, symbiotics, things like that as well. So, yeah, um, yeah I think there's going to be a lot more coming out in, in the next couple of years. Like Lydia said, it's a really big research area like to do with the gut microbiome. Is there anything we can do there? Uh, obviously, if it's possible to try and breastfeed because that um, sort of, you know, um, encourages the 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 bacteria that we want to be there in terms of the, the diversity of the of the baby's gut microbiome um but also i think it's really important to um like you said harriet it's quite emotive you know if you have to have a c-section if you have to have antibiotics if your baby has to have antibiotics you know don't beat yourself up about it that's you know i had to have c-sections you know that that wasn't something i could control um so it doesn't mean your baby is going to develop um food allergies or whatever these are just sort of risk factors that that we know are related um and so i think you know there's, there's certain things we can control and, and and certain we ones we can't you know Thank you. And final question on this, Lydia, can you outgrow a food allergy or do most children have these allergies for life? No, many do outgrow. Um, so I mainly work in milk allergy um, and the majority will outgrow by what about 80 percent or so will outgrow by school age. Um, peanut allergy, for instance, it, like I say, it depends on the allergen. Peanut allergy is less likely. So it's around one in five or 20 percent um, or so um, are more likely to take it on. There are we are, we do see allergies outgrown later in teens as well. So if milk allergy, for instance, isn't outgrown by five, six years, some parents can be a little bit despondent. But we have seen children outgrow a lot later um, as well. 
Paula, have you got anything to add on, on outgrowing? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the, the main thing is that it, it is allergen specific. So like Lydia, Lydia said, that the milk and egg allergies tend to um, be much more likely to be outgrown. Um, and yeah, like Lydia said, sometimes parents can get really despondent if their child is sort of five, six years old and they haven't outgrown them, but there is still a chance of them outgrowing them at a later age. And many children can, um, can tolerate certain forms of like the baked forms of milk and egg before actually tolerating milk itself or, or, or sort of um, undercooked egg and things like that. So milk and eggs are, are definitely much more likely to be outgrown than, than peanut um, allergy, which is yeah only sort of 20% and uh, around 20%. And tree nut allergies, I think it's only around 10%. Um, and things like fish and shellfish allergies, um, very, very, very unlikely to, to outgrow. So yeah, I think they, they still don't really know exactly why um, it is that certain allergens um, certain types of food allergies children tend to outgrow and certain other ones they don't so that's could be another area but there is um for instance we'll talk about this later I'm sure but um for instance to do with peanut allergy and stuff there's there's a lot that we can do in terms of treatment like immunotherapy and stuff so there's a lot going on to looking at trying to um uh trying to help children to sort of tolerate some of those so yeah we can talk about that more yeah, no, the peanut um, allergy research sounds fascinating. So I'll definitely come back to that later on. I just want to move on to talking a bit about food allergen labeling, which has obviously been quite a hot topic recently and covered quite extensively in the press with um, initiatives like Natasha's Law, for example. So Lydia, I know you wrote a, a really great piece in the NHD magazine a short while ago titled Food Allergen Labeling, an update on where we are now. And in the article, you talked about food allergies still not being fully understood or taken as seriously as they should be. I'm wondering why you think this may be. Yeah, so I think this comes down to the perception around um, allergy. There's a lot of misunderstanding and it comes around education. And I think it also comes around because of diet trends come and go. So, you know, gluten-free was in or milk-free or vegan or, or, or whatnot as well. And, and people are very sceptical uh, around kind of true allergy or not, whether it's allergy intolerance um, as well. And there's confusion within those terms, even amongst healthcare professionals um, as well. Uh, the amount of referrals I've got for, for lactose intolerance when it's actually uh, what we call non-IgE, so delayed milk allergy, it, it, it's crazy. Um, but when it comes to, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there, but when it comes to, um, why they're not kind of misunderstood part of that, like I said, is around perception, but also I think, um, it's seen as kind of trivial or, uh, insignificant in, in comparison to perhaps other, other diseases or conditions like diabetes or cancers or obesity that that do take a lot of focus and they take a lot of our kind of NHS budget as well. Um, so, for example, uh, a bit of hay fever. Well, actually, that can be quite deliberating for for that person. It can impact their mental health. It might impact their social life or any part of their life. They might not want to, to go anywhere or um, are really suffering with that. And what's interesting is um, Allergy UK have recently launched um, their new campaign, um, part of Allergy, their Allergy Awareness Week the other week. And what their campaign is, it's time to take allergy seriously. And I jotted down a few stats from it because I think it is really interesting um, part of their research. And they're going to be giving some more kind of stats later into the year. But 79% of people know at least one person other than themselves that live with an allergy. And 53% of adults feel like their friends and family don't understand how much allergies can impact their lives. And the same number, uh, 53%, were avoiding social situations. Now, if friends and family don't understand, how are we going to cope kind of, or how are we coping in restaurants elsewhere? Like it, it's, we've still got a long way to go. We're certainly improving when it comes to allergy awareness, but the perception around allergy, it's, it's, it, we still have a long way to go um, at, at the moment. And part of the campaign um, of the, taking allergy seriously is around mental health, but also the hidden realities and the burden of that, kind of emphasising what's happening, why people are feeling so isolated uh, around allergies, and hopefully shift people's perception around that as well. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. You say, you know, allergies are not taken as seriously as some other diseases, for example. But in the case of Natasha's law, we know that allergies can have really serious implications. And in some rare instances, very sadly, even death. Now, I wanted to ask you, Paula, how um, common is that situation of an extreme kind of anaphylactic reaction with a food allergy? Yeah, I mean, it's I'm not sure the exact stats, but it's you, you do you do obviously see it. Sadly, um, it's not that common in, in like babies and very, very young children um, it tends to be more as children get older. Um, and that might have to do with, you know, sort of um, obviously older children get adolescents. They're out and about more on their own. They they might be taking certain risks, but but even even if they're not taking risks, they're just eating out a lot more on their own and with with their friends and things like that. So I think for from a parent's point of view, uh, I've got teenage girls, and you know they don't have food allergies, but you know I'm still terrified when they're out on their own and things. You know, so I think from a parent point of view, and 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 like Lydia was saying, mental health and the impact of that. You know, really worrying about your child and. Um, really trying to make sure that they can advocate for themselves um, when they're out and about and, and really articulate how serious their allergy is um, and remembering to take their um, their uh, adrenaline auto-injectors, their um, AAIs like, like EpiPens with, along with them. You know, it's, 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 it's quite a burden, isn't it? It's quite a lot um, to, to put on a young person. Um, so, yeah, so I think, like Lydia said, we need a, a, a lot more awareness um, and, yeah, to, to be taken, for it to be taken um, seriously, that the sort of, it deserves to be, you know, be taken seriously. Yeah. And, and of course, food establishments have a responsibility to inform the consumer about which food allergens are within the product. And especially like you said, Paula, when teenagers are you know, having more responsibility and out and about and choosing what foods to eat. Um, I was wondering, Lydia, if you can tell us a bit more about Natasha's Law and, and the story behind what's led to that being um, initiated. Yeah, absolutely. So I think most people have heard of Natasha's story. Um, so Natasha Edna LaProuse was the teenager that had a severe reaction back in 2016 to um, sesame at the time, an undeclared um, ingredient. Um, and she had anaphylaxis on the plane to Nice. So um, sesame was in a, ba- a baguette um, that she bought from a well-known um, food chain. So at the time, there was no legal requirement to have allergy labelling on um, food that was pre-packed for direct sale, um, other than allergen information being relayed to the consumer, so either verbally or in an allergy folder. But I think it's important to, to actually um, give a definition of what pre-packed food for direct sale is. So that is food that is packaged in the same place it's offered or sold to the consumer as and is in packaging before it's selected. So this could be, for instance, if you go to your local butcher, if they have burgers or sausages that are already wrapped up before, so not loose good, or uh, for instance, like fast food, um, if it's ordered like a packaged burger and it's already packaged before ordered or like salads in a, in a deli, for instance, in a, in a pot, for instance. Um, there's lots of different definitions when it comes to different types of food. So you have, um, so it's different to pre-packed food, which is sold by one business um, and then supplied to another. And then you have loose foods um, that is not in any packaging. So you, that could be when you go to your um, like local bakery, for instance, and get a sausage roll that's not in any packaging. So uh, with Natasha's family, they campaigned um for a long, well, not actually not too long, but they campaigned for a while um, in a change in the law and the legislation. In 2019, that changed across the UK. So that includes Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England as well. Um, And that um, was enforced in October last year. So if businesses don't comply uh, with the legislation, they risk fines or in severe cases, um, prosecution. And what basically pre-packaged food, what's actually on the label is the name of the product, the ingredients, but also more importantly, the 14 allergens. So they must be listed in bold um, italics or, or capital letters or some way it needs to alert the consumer that to, to, that is emphasised or that's in the product. Um, so, yeah, is there anything else to, to add there, Paula? No, that, that was a brilliant, brilliant summary. I think, I mean, it's just... 
amazing that 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 labeling wasn't on food before isn't it i just i just find it it's so um incredible that yeah that there was still that sort of element of um you know risk if if someone someone like natasha in that situation she did everything that she thoughts you know to try and um prevent her herself not having any reaction and there was just no way of her knowing that that sesame was was in that baguette um but it's it's a it's a huge step forward um i think natasha's law is you know really brilliant for for um families and and young people with with food allergies so i think it's it's a really really brilliant step forward and they um natasha's parents are absolutely amazing at their campaign mm-hmm. and they've you know raised so much awareness um and really put it kind of on the agenda um you, you know the sort of national agenda in terms of you know this is this is serious we we, we really um need to protect um protect all these people yeah absolutely Thank you, Paula. Um, aside from Natasha's law, are there, is there any other legislation that exists to protect the public from allergens that you're aware of, Lydia? Yeah, and I think just to touch back on the previous question is that when it comes to allergen, there always seems to be loopholes um, and that's where it gets really tricky um, managing this. So the Food Standard Agency is probably one of the best places to go to uh, keep up to date with all of this kind of information as well. So in terms of legislation, we were talking about pre-packed foods. So in 2014, EU legislation uh, for pre-packed food had to to have that 14 allergen um, labelling. So that must be involved as well. And then in regards to there's still a little bit of uncertainty around kind of distance selling or on online orders, especially around companies that deliver and things now as well. So um, when it comes to online orders, um, allergen information still has to be provided, but it will either be on the website or they will provide it orally over the phone. So it's quite tricky. And I, I can understand why that in particular takeaways would um, would cause, um, provoke a lot of anxiety amongst kind of allergy consumers. Yeah, I was just going to add there, sorry, Harriet, um, that I think there was something in the news recently um, about ordering food um, online or, you know, like delivery or something, you know, on an app and that type of thing. And there was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Lydia, but I think there was another incident really, really sadly of of a boy who lost his life um because of something to do with you know not having all the information that i need and i think we're all ordering a lot more things on online than, than we used to and so i think that is an area that definitely um sort of needs a, a, a lot more sort of looking into and um at the moment like Lily said they it, it might just be verbally that they that they are sort of conveying that information and probably i, I don't think that's really good enough um so yeah i think that's the the ordering online i think is an area that that really needs um a lot more kind of input and i'm sure we'll see a lot more on that um in the future yeah definitely and actually i was reading that same story last week paul i think it was a a teen uh, someone at university ordering a pizza off of delivery and they had changed the pizza chain had changed the dough recipe that particular day and added in a different ingredient um which is, is yeah what was the allergen it was I think I've never known I think it was peanut flour to an almond flour they used but I didn't I've never known um kind of peanut flours used that much that's right yeah I wouldn't have thought of of that either in terms of an an allergen in a pizza you know in terms of peanut being being in that in that food yeah so um just shows you that these families have to be so vigilant about, you know, everything that they are, that they, that they or their child is eating. Um, even if they've eaten that exact food before, a slight recipe change can, um, you know, can, can mean that that food is just no longer safe for, for that particular person. Yeah, it can have big, a big impact. Um, often you'll see brands and or stating on food labels that a product may contain an allergen, you know, may contain nuts, may contain sesame, et cetera. Um, why would a brand put this on their product? Because surely that's going to instill quite a lot of fear in a family who has a child with a food allergen because you don't know definitively whether or not that product has that allergen in it. So, Paula, why do companies use that statement may contain? Yeah, it's 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 a huge um, kind of area, this uh, sort of may contain or um, precautionary allergen labeling, the sort of PAL labeling, they call it. Um, and I think it, this is one of the areas 
that is one of the hardest for families to sort of navigate. Um, so the, the Food Standards Agency has got a lot more information on this. So that this, that's a good um, place to sort of go and um, read extra about this if, if, um, if people would like to. Um, but it's uh, basically, it shouldn't be put on a, uh, that sort of warning or labeling shouldn't be put on a, on a um, food unless that food manufacturer really thinks that there is a real risk that there could be um, a, a, some kind of contamination. So some sort of other food allergen could have got into that product, even though that um, food doesn't contain any dairy or peanut or whatever the allergen might be. Um, but you do get a lot of companies saying may contain, and then sometimes they just list like every single food allergen. So you do wonder uh, sometimes if they're just putting it there just in case or it, to sort of avoid litigation or something like that. So I, I think it's it's a really, really, really challenging area for, for parents to navigate. Um, and yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, Lydia, it's not a legal requirement, is it? No, it isn't. So it's just voluntary. It's unregulated. And that's why a lot more needs to be done in this area. And I know there is a lot of work. So um, back in March, the FSA, um, brought out a consultation about it so we should hear a little bit more and that was viewpoints from everyone and anyone um to, to kind of put their input on what they think and what their thoughts are around may contain because it is a minefield uh, for families there's just so many statements there's over 20 plus statements on on how to say may contain which is is ridiculous and how, how are families supposed to navigate that Absolutely. I mean, I can imagine it must be so difficult if you've got a child and you're trying to, you know, navigate this allergy, um, world of food allergy. Now, it's po- oh, go, <laughs> sorry, sorry, go on, Lydia. Go it's on. also time consuming. So when you're out shopping, it's it's taking ages to read that label as well. But it also restricts choice for that person. Exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, it can just limit, might be limiting the diet incredibly unnecessarily. But on the other hand, you know, pe- parents think, oh, they, they don't want to take a chance with these foods. So it's, it's incredibly difficult. And what's also interesting is from a healthcare professional, um, so Paul Turner, kind of well, cons- well-known consultant in the field, he did some research quite a while ago, I think it was like 2013, um, looking at dietitians' um, advice around may contains, but also doctors and allergists as well. And what they basically found is that it's so varied that, it, and again, it depends on the allergen. And I, I will advise, you know, in some of my patients that they can have may contain, but it depends on the symptoms. It, um, so it, it's, we just need more guidance on how to manage this because healthcare professionals are all saying different things. And then that just adds to the pot of the confusion and frustration around this type of labeling. Definitely. And Paula, I was going to ask you, um, Working as the director of Tiny Tots, I presume you come across a lot of families, a lot of parents that you work quite closely with. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about that process of supporting the family at those different age ranges? Um, for example, you know, the young babies sort of introducing um, potential allergen foods through weaning, but also families with older children or teenagers when they're giving them more autonomy. Do you have perhaps a couple of examples you can talk us through or um, tell us a bit more about your day to day? work yeah sure so um i i spend a lot of time uh, and spend and and see a, a lot of um families with babies particularly so um who come to me either because their um their child has got say one or two food allergies and then they're looking for some advice in terms of um how to introduce solids to to that um to that baby and how to introduce the other allergens and how they how they go about it sometimes um families might come to me if they've got an another child and then they um an older older child and then they have another baby and they're sort of not sure about weaning and and food allergens and stuff like that so um if i um have a family so generally in terms of introducing allergens the sort of general advice what we would um advise is to try and get the allergens in as sort of as early as you can and sort of as part of the food that you're introducing to to baby so not to deliberately exclude any of the allergens unless they you know that they already have for example a cow's milk allergy um, so if i for example had a family who came to me and their baby had 
um, they, they did have cow's milk allergy, but as far as they knew, they didn't have any any other allergies that they that they knew of. So in that case, we would try and introduce the other allergens and try and include them in their in their diet, um, in when they're introducing solids. If they have, um, Lydia touched on earlier the sort of the fact that there's sort of different types of allergies. So there's this immediate type or, or IgE mediated allergies where the symptoms come on quite quickly after eating a certain food, and then they get delayed or non-IgE allergies. So if a if a baby um, has a um, immediate type allergy then they would likely be under an allergy clinic already. Um, and they might've had um, various tests or think uh, like skin prick tests or blood tests to help guide them in terms of um, which allergens to introduce. But on the whole, we wouldn't, necess we wouldn't necessarily do tests before introducing allergens. So the, the key is that we want to try and introduce these, these allergens and make the, the and include uh, as many of them as we can and to have the, the, the baby's diet as varied as possible. So when introducing allergens um, for, for the first time, so for example, say um, egg and peanuts would be usually the first sort of two that we would um, generally recommend introducing um, because we have the most research in terms of allergy prevention um, for those two allergens. Um, so the, the, the key sort of aspects into, in terms of sort of generally introducing allergens are, um, first of all, to start small. So to start with a, a, a small quantity um, and to, to build that up over, um, over a few days. Um, starting small um, helps to build up the confidence of that parent, I find, and, and also that um, starting small, if there is going to be any reaction, if the baby is going to react at all, then the reaction is likely to be sort of smaller or less severe because the more of that particular allergen they eat, the, the more of a, of a sort of reaction they could have. Um, so starting small would be the first thing. The, the other thing would be to introduce them one at a time. So we wouldn't recommend introducing, for example, egg and peanuts and um, I, I don't know, like tree nuts all sort of on the, on the, on the same day, try to um, do that sort of one at a time. So if there is, is any issue, then, you know, okay, that was the time that I was introducing egg or that was when I was introducing peanuts. Um, the other thing is to, to only introduce the allergens when your baby is well. So if you think they might have a virus or they like really particularly teething or, you know, sort of just had vaccinations or something going on, um, it's, it's probably not um, the best idea to, to, to introduce allergens at that particular um, time. Um, I also spend quite a bit of time um, talking to parents about sort of when or the timing in terms of introducing it. So what time, what time of day? Um, so we usually advise to introduce the allergens sort of earlier in the day. So it doesn't have to be kind of first thing, but what you want is a period of time where you can observe your, your baby after giving them the food allergen. So you don't want to give them peanut for the first time and then put them to bed. So you won't be able to, to observe them. So um, sometime before lunch is, is usually um, a, a good idea. Um, and then really, really key one, once you have um, spent a few days and sort of built up the amount that the that the baby's um, can, um, having and, and they're they're able to tolerate that particular food, so for example, um, egg, um, then what you want to do is to to keep on regularly giving that food. So um, at least sort of twice a week. That's the sort of frequency you want to try and keep including these foods. So. Um, Sorry, that was a really long answer, but basically to say that it's sort of early and often, and if they are tolerated, to keep regularly offering them. So we don't want it to be offered sort of once or twice and then not give that food allergen ever again for like another couple of months or, or whatever. We want to sort of try and keep it in as regularly part of their, um, of their diet. That's very interesting. A very thorough overview. Thank you. Um, on that note, I mentioned earlier that we would come back to peanut allergy because I know it's a topic you're both really passionate about and have been involved in with the research. Um, Lydia, do you want to begin by telling us a bit about the LEAP study and sort of where the research sits at the moment in terms of peanut introduction? I think Paula, you're oh, Paula. Oh, Paula. <laughs> okay. Only because you're involved in the Nippon study and things. I'm happy to talk about Eat and Leap, but um, I think you're sorry to pass it on to you. No, 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 that's good. That's good. It's fine. So the, the, the Leap study, um, it's Leap stands for learning early about peanuts. Um, and it was a study 
which started way back in 2006. Um, and they were looking at babies who were considered at high risk of developing peanut allergies. So there were babies who either had an egg allergy or who had eczema or, or both of those conditions. So they were considered at high risk for developing peanut allergy. So there is a, a link between sort of egg allergy and peanut allergy. Um, so they were uh, recruited between the ages of four and 11 months of age, sorry, four months and 11 months of age. Um, and they were either put into a group of re receiving or introducing, um, consuming pe peanuts in the form of um, bamba, which is like a peanut puff kind of crisp sort of thing. So it's in, in, a peanut in the, in the appropriate um, texture that babies could accept um, or, or the non-consumers not, not having, not avoiding, avoiding peanuts. Um, and then what they did was followed up those babies, uh, those children for five years. Um, and they had to keep uh, giving those, um, that bamba, the peanut three times a week to, to children. And then at the end of the five years, they looked at the number of children, um, the percentage of children that had developed peanut allergy and, and the percentage that, that hadn't. Um, and what they found was that there was a, a, a huge reduction, 80%, uh, I think it was 81% reduction in the development of peanut, peanut allergy in the group that had received the peanuts. So if they avoided peanuts, they were much more likely to develop peanut allergy than if they, um, than if they were given uh, the, the peanut protein, the peanuts in, in that time. Um, and then they also did, um, as a, just a, a continuation straight after that, they did the LEAP ON study, which was basically another 12 months. Um, and what they did was um, all groups, so whether they'd had the peanuts in the beginning or not, consumers or uh, people avoid the children are avoiding they asked them to stop giving peanuts completely for for a year and I think that must have been quite a big ask for parents because if you if you know that it's helped and then you think oh my gosh is this potentially going to reverse things or something but what they found that was that um there wasn't any like increase or whatever in, in the children that developed peanut allergy. So, so we know that it, that five years is definitely enough time in terms of the, the allergy prevention, that, that eating that, that food, in this case, peanut protein for that length of time um, is enough time to, um, to, uh, to give it the allergy prevention effect. Um, and in the moment, I'm involved in the LEAP TRIO study. Um, so I'm, I'm part of the allergy group. That's, so that LEAP study is, is continuing. So those children, those babies who were born in sort of between 2006 and 2008, so they now... Uh, what 15 now or so 15 16 that sort of age um and we're following up the families uh, those participants those those children as well as their families so siblings and parents um so looking at who developed peanut allergy which siblings developed peanut allergy um, and then also looking at the parents um in, in terms of their allergy history and their their sort of genetics so they they they, they there's um they're taking blood and looking at various genetic markers, um, and they also do skin prick tests on the the children as well as the um, as well as the adults. And we do like a food a food challenge to see if the the children are tolerating. Uh, we sort of officially tolerating a, a certain amount of peanut protein. So that's a, um, coming to an end now in um, August this year, and so then in the next couple of years, those um, you know results and and everything will be will be um, published. And I think we'll get gain a lot more information in terms of siblings, um, parents, genetics, the environmental factors that, that impact on, um, on peanut allergy. So a lot more coming out about that. The original LEAP study was published in 2015 um, and it did change quite a lot of guidance in terms of, um, especially in the States, they've officially changed their, their um, guidelines in terms of infant feeding and introducing peanuts. Um, here we have sort of guidance. It's not like an official um, kind of uh, official. Um, what's the word I'm looking for, <laughs> but it's more of a guideline as a guy um, in terms of encouraging people to uh, parents to to increase to include peanuts as peanut butter or bamboo or um, or um, or ground peanuts in in that those early those early few months uh, the the first um, you know between six and twelve months. I think um, it's important to highlight that um, the LEAP study is where is where most of the guidance is based on on that research, as well as the EAT study, which looked at other allergens. Although um, although it saw um, 
it reduced peanut and egg allergy. Um, it was wasn't kind of that was based on kind of per protocol, wasn't it? So. Um, what I wanted to highlight was that we still don't have a lot of information about other allergens. Um, so things like tree nuts, there is a tree nut study going on in high risk babies in Australia at the moment. And again, with the LEAP study, this is based on high risk babies, as Paul has um, yeah, yeah. indicated those with egg allergy. So we still don't we, we have lots of like snippets. But we don't have other information on other other common allergens, so things like fish and sesame as well. So there's lots more that we need needs to be done. Yeah, and it's kind of extrapolated. So, so we've got the the leap study and the and and um, which, as Lydia said, was on a high risk population. The eat study was on a sort of general breastfed um, population, but um, they only showed from that study that sort of egg and peanuts definitely showed an allergy prevention um, effect introducing them early during weaning. Um, and that was only, as Lydia said, per protocol. And a lot of people struggled with following the protocol. So that tells you something as well, that it's actually not that easy to do. Um, and so a lot of the other stuff like about tree nuts and, um, you know, soya or, or um, fish or, or the other allergens, wheat, et cetera, we, we've kind of extrapolated from the LEAP and the EAT study, but we don't have sort of absolute definitive um, research to say that it's definitely beneficial, but we think it probably is. That's a really thorough overview. Thank you very much. I'm sure that clears up a lot of confusion amongst our listeners, because I know this topic has been widely discussed over the past few years. Um, just as we come to the end of the episode, Lydia, I wanted to come back to you and your work at Allergy UK. Um, what more do you think we could be doing on a public health level to protect the public from food allergens? Yeah, there's a lot that we can do. Um, and a lot of the charities are doing a lot of work. So there are, you've got Allergy UK, you've got Anaphylaxis Campaign, and the Na Natasha Allergy Research Foundation as well, which is quite a new charity. Um, since Natasha, within the last three years, they're also um, advocating and, and raising allergy awareness. So some of what they're doing, so for instance, um, the Natasha Foundation, their focus is around kind of research. So particularly at a conference I went to recently, they were highlighting they're going to be looking at more kind of microbiome, environmental factors, genomics. But they also, from a public health um, perspective, they are trying to get an allergy czar, which is a public health kind of champion to advocate for allergy and allergy awareness. And a lot of the other charities are doing this. So I know Anaphylaxis Campaign and also Allergy UK um, also wanting this national kind of allergy strategy which are in place are in place in other countries such as Australia they've had a national allergy strategy for kind of the last five ten years or so especially around prevention um, of allergy so um, for instance also the food standards agency they're looking at food allergy safety schemes um, so I recently well, I say recently back in March went to one of their their talks around kind of raising um, consumer confidence around that because there is a strong demand for provisional information when eating out we you know people are not confident um and so they're exploring that idea that isn't a definite at the moment but uh, they've worked closely with um internal and external um, stakeholders so we'll wait and see if there is anything that comes um from that and then I think within Allergy UK, um, there's a lot in terms of kind of a, a very high level, so parliamentary that they're trying to do. So that national allergy strategy, because um, there are current gaps in healthcare. We know that it ends up being quite a postcode lottery um, when it comes to allergy services and, and patients need access to allergy services quicker as well. And I don't think, well, I know COVID certainly hasn't helped with that. Yeah. Um, That's really key when we're talking about introducing allergens, trying to be proactive. Um, you know, I speak to so, so many um, parents, I'm sure you do as Lydia as well, that, that parents have been waiting for months and months and months and, and they're trying to be proactive. They, they want to try and include these allergens, but they, they just don't have the support and yeah. stuff to in order to do that. So it's it, it, it's they need timely advice, don't they? Yeah. And I think also for our professionals in primary care, sometimes we can be too cautious as well with that advice. So we really, we're really trying to push the introduction of allergens, but actually 
we haven't got much data on that to see how we're doing, but in countries like Australia, their prevalence for peanut allergy is reduced by 16%. Like that's amazing. Um, and also their hospital admissions uh, for food-induced anaphylaxis, that's also started to slow year on year. So it is working. It's just taken a long time. Um, in places like Australia, for instance, their strategy has been over 10 plus years. Um, yeah. No, it's very exciting, the future of um, allergy research and management of food allergies. I'm wondering what you both think the future holds. Um, Paula, where do you think we'll be in 10 years time with, with food allergies? Gosh, that's really difficult. Um, I mean, I think like Lilia said, we, there's so much more we need to do in terms of allergy prevention and looking at countries like Australia, what they're doing is, um, you know, is inspirational and I'm sure we can we, we can get a lot from that and like she said we do tend to be a bit more cautious um, which of course we want what we, we need and we want families and babies everyone to be safe but sometimes there is yeah you said that there is a tendency to sort of err on the on the side of caution there um, I think there's going to be a lot more immunotherapy trials um, happening so um, where, where I work we're involved in quite, quite a lot of commercial um, peanut allergy trials so there, a few years ago, um, the uh, Palforzia was um, approved uh, by the FDA in the US um, and recently it has been approved um, for use here in the UK, but it's still... Um, it still needs to be sort of worked out exactly how this is going to work, how people are going to access it, how, how we sort of assess who this who this would really, um, you know, be beneficial for, you know, sort of all, all of those criteria and stuff. So I think for, for the NHS and, and stuff, we're still sort of trying to work out how that's how that's going to sort of um, happen and how we're going to move that forward. Um, but I think... It, not only in peanut allergy, but in other food allergies, they're going to. Um, I think there will be a lot more immunotherapy trials in um, other other allergens like the tree nuts and things like that that are tend to be more sort of lifelong allergies. Trying to look at ways that we can um, help desensitize children to those so that they are able to tolerate even just trace amounts so that there's, they, they feel more safe and they do come into contact with trace amounts of, of that food allergen, then, then, then they're not at risk. They still need to avoid, sort of largely avoid that, that allergen, um, but it, it can help massively with quality of life in terms of um, not having to absolutely, you know, worry all the time in terms of the, the trace amounts that the, of that allergen that they might come into contact with. So, yes, yeah, so I think we're going to see a lot more um, sort of immunotherapy trials um, coming out. Thank you. Lydia, have you got any final thoughts to add to Paula's answer there? Yeah, I think a lot more around allergy prevention um, as well. Um, so we know current kind of uh, trials currently going on. Again, they seem to be quite Australia based. I've touched on a few of them, like the vitamin D. There's also a really interesting one um, called the preg pre-egg nut study, which is comparing the effects of women eating high amounts of egg and peanut while pregnant to consuming a normal amount, which I think will be really interesting because there's suggestions that preventing food allergy might be in pregnancy and breastfeeding, but a lot is still not known. So I think I'm really excited to see the results of that um, as well. But yeah, a lot of allergy prevention. And I think also um, another study that's happened recently, I know it's not kind of 10 years into the future, but I think it all kind of links in with hygiene hypothesis is there was a study um, done in Ireland called the Coral Study, and it's a longitudinal study on the impacts of the coronavirus, um, coronavirus COVID pandemic on, on allergy. And this was in infants that were born in March um, and May in 2020 in Ireland. So some of this was presented recently, the BSACI, but I actually missed that talk, unfortunately. But it's interesting because they're still sampling. Uh, so they're going to be looking at a lot around kind of microbiome. So we're going to see a lot more in relation to perhaps prebiotics or uh, certainly I know in Ireland, they're looking a lot around diet, diet diversity um, as well. So we'll have a lot more, hopefully, more recommendations around that because we don't, when it comes to the Aki guideline that I was um, saying earlier, we just have um, just a few kind of recommendations at the moment. So it'd be really interesting to see what happens with that because I think they gave their six-month results and now we're waiting for some more. But I think COVID and what's happened will certainly have had an impact um, but just finding out a little bit more is quite exciting. 
Brilliant. Sorry, Harriet, I just wanted to add one more thing. I think there's also, well, I know there's also going to be um, allergy, sorry, eczema trials going on mm-hmm. as well. So there's this one study called the SEAL study, which is going to be starting really, it's multi-center. We haven't started at the, the unit I work in, but I think they, I think that the US arm um, has um, started that and that's looking at um babies with eczema and if there's anything we can do in terms of treating their eczema that might help um prevent food allergies from developing so um yeah i I don't know all the details about it it hasn't started yet but it's basically going to be looking at eczema eczema management as well as early allergen introduction and if there's a sort of optimum um balance of all of those things that that we can do to to sort of help this this progression of um, allergies which often happens with eczema that's interesting because at the moment when it comes to eczema all the studies they tended to contradict each other a little bit so it'd be actually mm. nice to see some of these other studies coming through and can yeah. help with, with that management. yeah yeah i think eczema there's just so much we don't know still with eczema it's it's a really huge area so yeah hopefully that'll give a bit more kind of insight Great. Thank you very much. And we can definitely link to the Yaki guidelines. I think, Lydia, you mentioned earlier on in the show notes. Um, Now, my final question to you both to wrap up this episode is what would be the main message that you would like our listeners to take away from this podcast episode? So I'm going to come to you first, Lydia. Yeah, sure. So I think a few points Um, it's raising allergy profile awareness wherever you can. Um, I think also it's about active management of of food allergy and also preventative strategies for that. So being aware if you're working in this particular area, as um, Paul has gone into in regards to early introduction, especially paediatric dietitians and and getting that advice out there because it's still not being followed in, in our country at the moment um, and we still have a lot of work to do uh, around that and also I think finally um, patient organizations and charities are fundamental um, when services are, are lacking or stretched so signposting um, to those as well. Lovely thank you Lydia and Paula final thoughts from yourself. Okay, brilliant. I mean, I agree with all of those things that um, that Lydia has um, mentioned. And yeah, particularly if there are pediatric dietitians listening, that, you know, we really need to get the message of um, allergen, early allergen introduction um, out there. And um, although I think the message is starting to sort of get out there more and we're starting to have more awareness, um, there there is um, sort of still isn't sort of um, out there properly yet. So I think, um, yeah, definitely info about um, early allergen introduction and we want to be you know proactively introducing these um, these allergens as much as we can Um, and yeah that's that would be my my main message and then definitely what what Lydia said the fantastic organizations out there that can provide so much support Um, families really need a lot of emotional support and psychological support Um, and I think that's a lot more recognized now that really there's there's a lot more support that's needed. Um, psychology services aren't always available in, in sort of all um, hospitals or allergy teams. Um, and so I think the, the patient um, organisations, um, support organisations can offer a lot um, in terms of that kind of emotional and psychological support for families. Thank you so much, Paula. Now that's everything uh, we're going to have time to discuss on today's episode all about food allergies. So I'd like to thank our two guests for spending their afternoon with us today and for sharing their valuable experience and passion with us on this exciting topic. And a huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you do enjoy listening to the Dietitian Cafe podcast, please consider subscribing and or leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more health professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. We've also linked to our guests' um, social media handles in the show notes as well as our websites. So do check those out for further information. All that's left to say is thank you for joining us and our next episode will be out very soon. 